Lesson 13 for September 16 through to 22, The Gospel and the Church. Sabbath afternoon, September 15. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're coming towards the end. There are just this lesson and the next to go in this quarter's lessons on Galatians. And they've been a marvel. They've been a revelation to us of your love and your kindness and your grace. And we pray as we continue through this series that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we step one by one through various passages in the Scriptures. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's read that again, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Some farmers decided to save the biggest vegetables for themselves and to plant the smaller ones as seeds. After a few disappointing harvests, they discovered that nature had reduced their crops to the size of marbles. Through this disaster, those farmers learned an important law of life. As the International Student Fellowship newsletter of March 2007 said, they could not have the best things of life for themselves and use the leftovers for seed. The law of life decreed that the harvest would reflect the planting. In another sense, planting small vegetables or whatever it is, is still common practice. We take the big things of life for ourselves and plant the leftovers. We expect that by some crazy twist of spiritual laws, our selfishness will be rewarded with unselfishness. End of quote. Paul applies this principle in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through to 10, that we'll read later in the week. Instead of its members biting and devouring one another, as it said in Galatians 5.15, the church should be a place where the Spirit leads us to put others before ourselves. Understanding that we are saved by grace should make us humble and more patient and compassionate in how we treat others. Sunday, September 17, Restoring the Fallen While Paul has lofty expectations for the nature of the Christian life in Galatians 5.16, his counsel to the believers in Galatians 6 verse 1 also is refreshingly realistic. Humans are not perfect, and even the most dedicated Christians are not immune from making mistakes. In Greek, Paul's words in Galatians 5.16 indicate that he is envisioning a situation in which such mistakes might occur. Paul gives the Galatians practical advice on how to deal with such situations when they arise. Question. How should Christians respond when a fellow believer falls into some sinful behaviour? 
Paul writes in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. And Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 17, Jesus said in dealing with a sinning brother, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. To benefit from Paul's advice in Galatians 6.1, we need to understand the precise type of situation that Paul has in mind. The two words used in the first half of the sentence offer clarification. The first word can be translated as caught in the ESV or overtaken in the KJV. It literally means to be detected, overtaken or surprised. The context and different nuances associated with this word suggest that Paul has two aspects in mind. This is because it refers not only to a believer who catches another believer in the act of some wrongdoing, but also to the process by which a person finds himself overtaken by a behaviour that, under the best circumstances, he would have chosen to avoid. Solomon has something to say in Proverbs 5.22. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. The likelihood that the wrongdoing Paul is discussing is not deliberate is evident from the terminology he uses. The word translated as fault in the KJV, or sin in the NIV, which comes from the Greek word paratoma, does not refer to a deliberate sin, but to a mistake, a stumble, or a false step. The latter makes particular sense in light of Paul's previous comments about walking in the Spirit. Although this in no way excuses the person's mistake, it makes clear that Paul is not dealing with a case of defiant sin. As we read in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 5, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The proper response in such circumstances should not be punishment, condemnation or disfellowship, but restoration. The Greek word translated as restore is katarizo, K-A-T-A-R-T-I-Z-O, and it means to mend or to put in order. 
In the New Testament, it is used to refer to the mending of fishnets in Matthew 4.21, and it is used as a medical term in Greek literature to describe the process of setting a broken bone. In the same way that we would not abandon a fellow believer who fell and broke a leg, as members of the body of Christ, we should gently care for our brothers and sisters in Christ who may stumble and fall as we walk together on the path of God's kingdom. So, to finish today, instead of practising Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17 why do we so often talk badly about the person with whom we're angry, let our anger simmer against the person, or even plan revenge? Monday, September 18, Beware of Temptation Our text for today is Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 7. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. The seriousness of Paul's words in Galatians 6.1, to guard our own lives lest we also follow into temptation, should not be overlooked. An indication of the urgency and personal concern between Paul's counsel can be seen in the way he makes his appeal. The word translated as considering in the King James Version or take care in the New Revised Standard Version literally means to look at carefully or to pay careful attention to. As we'll see in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. And Philippians 2, verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So what Paul literally is saying is, Keep a careful eye on yourself, lest sin also take you by surprise. To highlight this warning, Paul switches from the second personal plural, you all, in the first half of Galatians 6.1, to the second person singular, you, in the last half of the verse. This is no general warning that applies to the whole congregation. It is a personal warning addressed to each individual within the church. Paul does not explicitly identify the nature of the temptation that he so strongly warns the Galatians against. Perhaps he didn't have one specific trespass in mind, but is simply referring to the danger of committing the same sin, whatever it is, from which the Galatians are trying to restore one another. At the same time, his words in Galatians 5.26 against becoming conceited as it says in the New King James Version, suggests that he is warning the Galatians against feeling that they are in some way spiritually superior to those they are restoring. And so to close today, why would Paul need to warn the Galatians against spiritual pride 
and we're going to look at some texts as we answer that question for ourselves. The first is 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And Matthew 26.34 Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows you will deny me three times. And Second Samuel 12 verses 1 through to 7 Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveller came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd, to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold to the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. One of the greatest dangers to the Christian walk is a sense of spiritual pride. Such pride makes us think we are somehow immune from committing certain types of sin. The sobering fact is that we all have the same sinful nature, a nature that is opposed to God. Thus, without the restraining power of God's Spirit, we could stoop to just about any sin were the circumstances right. Such an awareness of our true identity, outside of Christ, can keep us from falling into the sin of self-righteousness, and it also can give us greater sympathy for others who make mistakes. So to finish today, how many times have you found yourself condemning others, maybe even only in your heart, for doing sins that at one time you were guilty of yourself? Tuesday, September 19, Burden Bearing Question. In addition to restoring the fallen, what other instructions does Paul give to the believers in Galatia? And our texts for this are Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 through to 5. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. And the other texts with this are Romans 15 verse 1. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. And Matthew 7 and verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and 
the prophets. The Greek word translated as burden in Galatians 6.2 is baros, B-A-R-O-S. It literally refers to a heavy weight or load that someone had to carry a long distance. Over time, however, it also has become a metaphor for any type of trouble or difficulty, such as the burden of a long day's work on a hot day, as in Matthew 20 verse 12, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. While the immediate context of Paul's injunction to bear one another's burdens certainly includes the moral lapses of the fellow believers mentioned in the preceding verse, the concept of burden-bearing he has in mind is much broader. Paul's instructions reveal several spiritual insights about the Christian life that should not be overlooked. First, as Timothy George notes in his book Galatians, page 413, All Christians have burdens. Our burdens may differ in size and shape and will vary in kind, depending on the providential order of our lives. For some it is the burden of temptation and the consequences of a moral lapse, as in verse 1 here. For others it may be a physical ailment or a mental disorder or a family crisis or lack of employment or demonic possession or a host of other things but no Christian is exempt from burdens. Second, God does not intend us to bear all our burdens alone. Unfortunately, we often are far more willing to help others to carry their burdens than we are in allowing others to help us shoulder our own. Paul condemns this attitude of self-sufficiency in Galatians 6 verse 3 as human pride, when we refuse to admit that we also have needs and weaknesses. Such pride not only robs us of the comfort of others, but also prevents others from fulfilling the ministry that God has called them to perform. Finally, God calls us to bear the burdens of others because it is through our actions that God's comfort is made manifest. This concept is built on the fact that the Church is the body of Christ. An illustration of this is in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 7.6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Notice that God's comfort was not given to Paul through his private prayer and waiting upon the Lord, but through the companionship of a friend and through the good news which he brought as John R. W. Stott writes in The Message of Galatians, page 158. Human friendship, in which we bear one another's burdens, is part of the purpose of God for His people. And so to finish today, what keeps you from seeking help? Pride, shame, a lack of trust, or a sense of self-sufficiency? If in need, why not seek out someone whom you trust and ask this person to share your burden? Wednesday, September 20, The Law of Christ Question. 
Paul connects burden-bearing with following the law of Christ. What does he mean by the law of Christ? Well, we'll look at a few verses here. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfil the law of Christ. And John 13 verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And Matthew 22 verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Paul's use of the phrase, the law of Christ, ton nomon tu Christo, occurs nowhere else in the Bible, though he uses a similar expression in 1 Corinthians 9.21, enomus Christo. The uniqueness of this phrase has resulted in a number of different interpretations. Some mistakenly argue that this is evidence that the law of God, given at Sinai, has been replaced by a different law, the law of Christ. Others claim the word law simply means a general principle, as we see in Romans 7.21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, meaning that in bearing the burdens of others, we are following the example of Jesus. While the latter interpretation has some merit, the context and similar terminology with Galatians 5.14 suggests that fulfilling the law of Christ is another reference to fulfilling the moral law through love. Paul showed earlier in his letter that the moral law was not annulled with the coming of Christ. Instead, the moral law interpreted by love continues to play an important role in the Christian life. This is the epitome of what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry, as well as practiced throughout his life and even in his death. Thus, in bearing the burdens of others, we are not only following in the footsteps of Jesus, but also following the law. Another issue that arises in these texts is the apparent contradiction between Galatians 6, verse 2, and verse 5. Let's read them. Galatians 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. And verse 5 in Galatians 6, For each one shall bear his own load. This problem, however, easily is resolved when one realises that Paul is using two different words to describe two different situations. As we already have seen, the word for burden in verse 2, baros, b-a-r-o-s, refers to a heavy load that has to be carried for a long distance. The word fortion, p-h-o-r-t-i-o-n, in verse 5, however, refers to a ship's cargo, a soldier's backpack, or even a child in the womb. 
whereas the former burdens can be laid aside, the latter cannot. A pregnant mother must carry her own child. As this example suggests, there are some burdens that people can help us bear, but others that no human can bear for us, such as the burden of a guilty conscience, suffering and death. For these, we must rely on God's help alone, as we read in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So to finish the day, while for some burdens you can get help from other people, some you have to take to the Lord alone. How can you learn to give to the Lord the things that you just can't bear? Thursday, September 21. Sowing and reaping. And our text for today is Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through to 10. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, the word translated as mocked, mukterizio, M-U-K-T-E-R-I-Z-O, occurs only here in the New Testament, though it often appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It literally means to turn up one's nose in contempt. In the Old Testament, it typically refers to the despising of God's prophets, as in Second Chronicles and Jeremiah chapter 20, and it even is used once to describe graphically a rebellious attitude toward God in Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 17. And that reads, And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Paul's point is that people may ignore God or even flout his commandments, but they cannot outwit God. He is the ultimate judge, and in the end, they will have to pay the price for their actions. Question. Read Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8. What does Paul mean here? What examples can you find in the Bible of characters sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit? And we'll look at some of those, but first of all, Galatians chapter 6 
and verse 8. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And the first example is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through to 5. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Paul's metaphor about sowing and reaping is not unique. It is a fact of life that appears in many ancient proverbial sayings. What is significant, however, is how Paul uses it to highlight his previous comments about the flesh and the Spirit. James D. G. Dunn notes in Galatians, page 330, a modern equivalent is that we are free to choose, but we are not free to choose the consequences of our choice. End of quote. Although God does not always deliver us from the earthly consequences of our sins, we should not be overcome with despair for the bad choices we have made. We can rejoice that God has forgiven us of our sins and adopted us as his children. We should capitalize on the opportunities we have now to invest in those things that will yield a heavenly harvest. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, meanwhile, illustrates the point that Christian ethics has a dual focus. One is universal and one all-embracing. Let us do good to all people. The other is particular and specific, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul's universalistic appeal was based on the fact that all persons everywhere are created in the image of God and are thus infinitely precious in his sight. Whenever Christians have forgotten this primary datum of biblical revelation, they have inevitably fallen victim of the blinding sins of racism, sexism, tribalism, classism, and a thousand other bigotries that have blighted the human community from Adam and Eve to the present day. And that last paragraph was from Timothy George's book, Galatians, page 427 and 428. So to finish today, you are sowing right now, either for good or bad. Look at yourself. What kind of harvest are you going to reap?
Friday, September 22. From Manuscript 126, written in 1901 by Ellen White, we read, The Spirit of God keeps evil under the control of conscience. When man exalts himself above the influence of the Spirit, he reaps a harvest of iniquity. Over such a man, the Spirit has less and less influence to restrain him from sowing seeds of disobedience. Warnings have less and less power over him. He gradually loses his fear of God. He sows to the flesh. He will reap corruption. The harvest of the seed that he himself has sown is ripening. He has a contempt for God's holy commandments. His heart of flesh becomes a heart of stone. Resistance to truth confirms him in iniquity. It is because men sowed seeds of evil that lawlessness, crime and violence prevailed in the antediluvian world. All should be intelligent in regard to the agency by which the soul is destroyed. It is not because of any decrees that God has sent out against man. He does not make man spiritually blind. God gives sufficient light and evidence to enable man to distinguish truth from error, but he does not force man to receive truth. He leaves him free to choose the good or to choose the evil. If man resists evidence that is sufficient to guide his judgments in the right direction and chooses evil once, he will do this more readily the second time. The third time he will still more eagerly withdraw himself from God and choose to stand on the side of Satan. And in this course, he will continue until he is confirmed in evil and believes the lie he has cherished as truth. His resistance has produced its harvest. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, in a practical sense, what does it really mean to restore a fellow believer who has fallen into sin? In what ways does the nature of the sin committed affect the restoration process? Does restoration mean that everything will be the same as before? Be prepared to discuss this. Two, because there are some burdens that people must bear on their own, as it said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 5, how does a believer determine if he or she should try to help someone? And question 3, how does your church measure up to Paul's instructions in Galatians chapter 6? What can you do personally to make a difference? So to summarise this week's lesson. The indication of God's presence among his people is in the Christ-like spirit manifested within the church. It can be seen in the way forgiveness and restoration are extended to those who err, in how they help each other in trials and in intentional acts of kindness, shared not only among themselves, but also with unbelievers. Inside Story. Our mission story this week is the second part of Match Made in Heaven. The next day, Marina brought some material for Sahana to read. As Sahana read the material, she was amazed at how clear Daniel and Revelation became. Later, Marina brought her the Desire of Ages to read. Sahana read it through swiftly, feeling the Holy Spirit impress her that this was the truth. Sahana wanted to visit the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
and see for herself whether the church and its members could live up to her expectations. So, when she and Marina both had a Saturday off work, Marina took her to church. When they entered the church, Sahana saw Michael, the man she had met in the hospital. She was surprised to learn that he was the leader of this small congregation. After church, Sahana confided to a friend, The people are so friendly and gracious. This church is exactly as you said it would be. I feel as if I have found my spiritual home at last. When Sahana returned home after church that day, she eagerly told her parents about her worship experience. Her parents had never heard of Seventh-day Adventists, so Sahana explained to them some of the basic beliefs and told them about the books she had read. She opened the Bible and read them the Ten Commandments and explained that God had never abolished His law, nor had He changed it. Jesus and His disciples kept these same laws, she told them. Sahana's parents were glad she was so happy. They encouraged her to follow her new beliefs, but they would continue to attend the church they had attended for years. Sahana's year of teaching was almost up and she began looking for another job. At the same time, Sahana's parents began looking for a husband for her. I am worried about the man my parents will choose, Sahana confided to Marina. You and your husband come to your faith together, but what if my parents choose a man for me who doesn't want me to worship as an Adventist? It will be difficult for me to keep my faith, and if I marry someone who doesn't share my beliefs. And the story is to be continued next week. We'll see you at the end of next week's lesson. God bless you. Have a great Sabbath. And remember, God is always faithful. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel.